Well, now's the time that we can make jokes about Jared. Of course. Yep. Um, Ken, before you got here, Jack and I were talking about the topic being resisting automation. And that feels like a wellspring I, I think of... It's a, it's a good topic. I We're not having a problem with that because... <laughs> You have no choice. It's kind of dictatorial. <laughs> we don't have a problem with that because what automation? No, quite the opposite. I am slowly taking away AWS console access and, you know, making it so it's automation or else. Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about folks that resist automation. Friends, we enjoy podcasting because we're passionate about computers and sharing the experience of running systems at scale with the next generation. Would you help us fulfill our mission and consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcasts or even offering feedback? Contact us at feedback at operations.fm. So I think the three of us have an extraordinary amount of experience with both automating things and working with teams that are not excited about automating things. <laughs> that's a, that's a good way of putting it. I the remember experience part. I haven't run into too much resistance, mostly because, well, in my current position, mostly because the downside to not is insanely evident. And so it doesn't take much to convince people that we should automate because the not is, is, is one of the big problems. And, you know, I don't, well, if we're talking about this, I mean, we have Kubernetes clusters that were built by hand and we barely know how to make, how they work. Oh, even Kubernetes clusters built by hand in AWS with, you know, EKS is, is painful enough. I'm dealing with yeah. those. And and that's the thing is, you know, this, these things were built by hand. They were neglected. There's no documentation. Built by hand, neglected, no docs. We kind of <laughs> squeezed it to make it fit in some of the broken exactly. Terraform we have. But you have to know the, the ins and the outs and this part's in that Terraform and this part's yep. in this over Terraform. And, and yeah, yeah. When you run that, that plan, don't expect it to be clean, man. <laughs> God, I would have loved it if we, we, this isn't even, I mean, this is truly by hand it's not terraform it's not cloud formation it is hey this worked pointing and clicking in the web GUI, web console so we kept it and what what bugs me the most is not having enough time to to do, do the automation but you've done some of it but you haven't really completed it and you know yeah. things shift products change and you need to to roll out a duplication you need to roll out the next stack and there's all these things that are different. So yeah. those differences, oh, we can just, you know, hand job that later. And you so say, your automation okay, yeah. is never, it never produces a working system. And yes, I did use the word hand job. Yeah, I was, I was going <laughs> to, um, anyway. So I, I think all of us remember when we first really encountered automation properly, be it Puppet or Bconfig or some homegrown set of tools that would let you replicate an environment easily or jumpstart or kickstart or whatever those things were. It is so funny because now I think of my opinion of puppet now and my opinion of puppet when I first discovered it. 
Oh God! When I first found Puppet, <laughs> it was transformative. It, no, no, it was life changing. Sucked when I first found it. Who would use that shit? Oh my God! It's completely life transforming. And who the hell still uses that old and busted shit? I mean, it's the Ark of Puppet. Well, yeah, yes, it is. But that's also it, the arc it, of it all is. the tools. Like that—that's how the tools evolve yeah. and how they work and how, how we move through them. And it's appropriate. But when yeah. we started, like I remember Puppet being the. Hang on, we're not synchronizing password changes across servers. This is great. And then a couple yeah. jobs later, I was tasked with scaling Urchin. Urchin was a product, a web analytics product that used to be sold before the vendor decided not to sell it anymore. And I'm leaving the vendor's name specifically out. That's for... usually the case, yeah. And I realized that I could go into the database and I could like do a bunch of really custom, awful things to generate what I wanted. And then feed that into Puppet and then have Puppet create the database entries and tables and views and accounts. And because it was four or five hundred V hosts that we were managing and it was great. It was also super dirty. But even then, people were pushing back against automating things. They, they didn't want to let go of the, hey, this is how we've always done it. This is how this works. I really know how this individual piece of hardware is configured. And I was like, no, 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 stop. Stop doing any of that. It was, no. I I discovered Puppet in the HPC world. And when you're rolling out a cluster of a few hundred identical machines, it was, you want to talk about transformative because previously it had been sticking CDs in. Ooh. And running a lot of homegrown scripts so that all Answering of them the question were the, the same. same way, 106 times. Exactly. You needed every one of those compute nodes to be identical. They had to be. They had to have exactly the same packages installed down to the versions or else. And I miss you know, when Bale you're doing clusters. that many, it's entirely possible that you know CentOS would up you know, have a new release of something you couldn't even rely on, you know, just yum install and hope that all the versions were the same. Yeah, CentOS would push an upgrade during the middle of, of upgrading your cluster. So half your nodes are on one version, yeah. half the nodes are on a different one. Oh yeah. Those are the days. Been there, done that. Oof. But like that, we, we laugh about those being the old times, but I work with people today and recently, and I talk to people outside of where I currently work and they're resistant to the idea of automating stuff. It's it, it, it's just a couple of mouse clicks in a, in a in a console. It's it's just a web UI. It's fine. And it's not like they're you know super gray beard with this piece of technology or this piece of hardware or the Sun E twenty five. These are new projects to them. These are no, things I, that they've I, had to figure out. And it's like okay, well you know. I'm only going to stand up this firewall device, you know, like three or four times. There's no reason to me to automate it. Yeah, I find it's the younger folks who are, are less likely to do it because they're learning and it's newer stuff to be able to do all this. And it's, well, I want the control. I want to be able to, and I'm like, no, I want to be able to do it exactly the same next time. Well, they also haven't had the battle scar where <laughs> like a couple of, Sorry, many jobs Don't you ago. Mean open wit, open wounds. Well, yes, but many jobs ago, there were five of us running two hundred and fifty-ish pieces of metal, and you had to automate. Edges. You had to automate that because if you didn't, everything went to to pot pretty quickly. 
But now in I the... had nearly a thousand or even more, I think at one point, um, workstations, lab machines that students went to the computer lab and logged in and used. And they mean physical Dell workstations. Yeah, and being able to con- consistently configure those or make sure that the update you wanted hit all of them, it's important. Yep. Make sure MATLAB runs everywhere, except where we don't have the license. Yeah. And ironically, folks these days that I, I come across who are learning about this, see the the images or the AMI groups or the autoscalers in Kubernetes to all be perfectly acceptable. And now you're getting repeatable, accessible builds. But they then go into the load balancer or the TLS configurations <laughs> or into other pieces and manually tweak that. I'm like, no, 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 no. Yep. All of it is the same. All of it. Every, every yeah, piece of this. we can just scale up this ASG by hand. It's not a problem. I'll put that into code later. And there's your problem. Um, it's really frustrating to, to try to, to teach folks these lessons that we learned very painfully over many years. And have them go, but why would we, we, why would we need that? And it's not so much why we need that, but it's at least in some of the examples that I have, it's the speed at which we develop software. We push out new features, the speed at which we move forward. There's so much pressure to be done, to do the next thing that That most of the time doing things the right way or figuring out how to automate something. I mean, granted Figuring out how to automate, you know, a virtual firewall appliance is 20 times harder than installing the virtual firewall appliance in your AWS account. Yeah, true. But when you're going to do that, you know, five, 10, any amount of times really, it starts to make sense. Even for, you know, the documentation process does, you know, A look like B or just, you know, future maintenance of how is this set up? I need to make this configuration change. Just run the automation again. I'm in a you know a significantly smaller organization than y'all, and, and human resources. I'm in huge, are that. and Brendan is in huger. Yeah, true. And human resources are even that much more precious, as in our time. And don't get me wrong. Obviously, a huge proponent of all the automation tools, and everything else, but automating it takes longer and there are times where i go how many times are we going to have to do this is this a one-off is this ever going to occur again and yeah there's definitely that that trade-off depending on you how much man hour you have people hours yeah. excuse me um and you how much are you going to repeat this process um, and and i fully voice that i know this is going this is the wrong way i know we shouldn't do it but we don't have time well, and, and those <laughs> those are the hard situations to figure out. Yeah. And especially when you get into larger organizations and you still don't have time to really fully automate how you set up your infrastructure. Uh you know that that there's still that trade-off of, you know, time versus ability versus priorities of the company, but that's the magic of being a larger company. You have the ability to scale bigger and faster well, rather than a smaller uh, company, a smaller workforce that's making those decisions about how they handle their technical debt. And again, there is at small organizations, there are things you do not automate. The entering of a credit card for the root account on your AWS 
profile instance, whatever. <laughs> like, Please don't automate that. You do that once, and you never do that again, and that's that's a one-time setup fee. In a large organization, when Amazon emails you and said your credit card expired, you need to re-enter it again, and everybody looks at each other going, what do I do with this email? But what I'm saying is, like, you don't put that in Terraform. That, that's not a Terraformable... <laughs> aspect of the don't stack. put secrets in your terraform <laughs> well I, I don't mean the credit card numbers themselves i mean i mean the there are certain operations that are yeah one time not repeatable not scalable our, not reappliable our, yeah our root account hell our our basic networking for our aws was all done by hand you know i can't if, if somebody was to accidentally nuke our our uh, some of our accounts the basic the VPCs and subnets and all that stuff, it was done by hand. Now, I've reversed it. It's now in Terraform that I can run a plan and it says there's no changes. You never tested it. <laughs> but are you sure about that? Exactly. Uh, and I'm not gonna. Yep. I don't have, I it's just don't have time. You have time. You don't have an account with that much money in it. Then as you move exactly. down the stack, there there are more and more things that you should automate. Like, yes, the the basic VPC definition should be in Terraform. But there's going to be a couple of pieces like, oh, we need this one license key applied in this one place. Okay, well, maybe that oh, gets yeah. accepted. But as oh, as the we... tree grows down, as, as you get into more and more stuff, the more and more automation is required so you don't fall behind. You don't forget what happened. And yeah. I guess at like an early stage startup, it doesn't really matter because if you lose your account, you're out of business anyway. And throw the games up. And okay. But anybody who's outside of the three people working together in a garage or an office needs to have extensively repeatable everything. So start there. And it's, you know, I recently inherited something that I, something failed. The something blew folks, up and it fell in your lap. Exactly. The previous person had done a fantastic job of documenting. Praise they be to Jeebus. It, I mean, you know, basically all their shell commands that they issued, everything else, it was fantastic. And it was three, four years ago, and the versions of things that they were downloading don't exist anymore. Oof. And I'm just like, I'm starting from scratch anyway. On the one hand, you have like a milestone, a guidepost, a, and, and that's, yeah, a something. I <laughs> I knew the destination because I had the old one and I knew what it kind of looked like, but was starting from scratch and it, it took long, much longer than it should. And this time I downloaded them and stuck them in a bucket and my automation pulls from the bucket, not from the vendor's website. <laughs> oh, so often I talk to people who don't understand why you cache everything for build systems and install systems and those things. And I'm oh. like, no, 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 no. You never download anything from the internet. Anything. I've had this conversation with my team and I said, this is the proper way. It would be absolutely fantastic if we had the time and the human resources to run our own artifact repository so that we weren't, you know, that the build system was isolated and everything came we just don't have the time and the people. So here's what you should do, and here's what we're doing. I'm so sorry. I, The number of times I've been bitten, and I've seen people be bitten by that, oh. it's incalculable. The, the hours, the waste. 
NPN, oh, my favorite one, our Iron Tire build system failed because it was running Docker and Docker and as, <laughs> as part of it. Yeah, we know. I know. And there was no tag on the containers that it was downloading from Hub oh, Docker. God. And Alpine did a major release switch. And then Docker and now, blocked you for hitting the API limit. And now you, the some things, the, uh, what do they call it, muscle C, the, the, the C-libs were incompatible with some of the other containers that were getting pulled in. And everything just collapsed. And it's like... Don't put latest and don't leave off a tag on your image. As an aside, what kills me about latest, what absolutely kills me about latest is it's the worst of both worlds. It's not actually latest and (laughs) people think it's latest. Yep. So you, you get in a situation where you have three containers running all tagged latest. They're running different versions of code. And yet at the time they started they were the latest, so it's fine. At the time they started, they were labeled latest, so it must I, be fine. Yeah, I abs. Yeah. If there was I one decision about latest. Docker, if one decision about Docker I could reverse would be the convention, the community convention around using the latest tag to represent current, because it's not. Yep. It's not. It never is. But so automation. I mean, you said it earlier. Fully tested automation. Yeah, you got. You have to test it. I have plenty of things in Terraform that I imported because they were built by hand, and I haven't been able to test them. They're emergency only. But at least you've reverse compiled some bad Terraform code of it. But it's the the testing it is you and testing it. It would be nice if you could test it from clean clean room where you don't have access to the net. To you know, do we have everything that we need? But that's that's just just another hurdle. Yeah, and a lot of folks don't understand that if you take a Terraform configuration and just repoint it at a different, you know, AZ or a different zone or a different region, that's not actually testing it. You have to bring the thing up and see if it works, which often conflicts with production if you haven't thought about it ahead of time. Terraform is an amazing pain in the you-know-what to test. Oh, yeah. And especially since it literally does cost you money. You mean the test? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to spin up something that's going to increase my bill. And unless you have management or financial backers who are seriously invested in the idea that, yeah, you can burn whatever pile of money to validate your test, it's not so good. Which is another fun, fun part of a small organization. The changes in the AWS bill get noticed. Oh, yeah. So actually, can I have a question for you? Um, In a smaller organization, what are the other easier things to either automate or script or do things to reduce toil or regular operations, if you can think of things, um, that don't involve like spinning up a Terraform stack or doing other sort of larger operations? Yeah. um, (laughs) You know, it's it's funny. You you go back to basics when you're in a small place because i've i do things like handing out laptops um account creation is is another is one of the things that drives me nuts making you know that's automating that across applications 
And because no matter how much you try and how much you work at SSO, there's always this one thing that Department X has to have and it doesn't support SAML or any other standard and you just have to build, you just have to put people in it. Yeah. Um, that one, you know, um, God, I don't know because we also, I mean, we don't have a product or customers. That's fair. Um, one of the things that <laughs> we have a very odd setup because we you don't have a product magic. and you don't have a customer. Yeah. We make money by magic. So it's, that is the perfect business. I bet you get it has work done. It has advantages. Well, we have customers. Unfortunately, those are the traders and they're the ones that actually make us money. And so when they say I can't work because I can't have X, you move. Well, they get X money. Yeah. And sometimes that that's there's no way to do it properly because you know, not only is it taking your time which costs money, it's taking their time which is costing a lot of money. So the things you've hit on remind me of the things that at smaller organizations I've always wanted or enforce automation of, which are things like account provisioning, deprovisioning, TLS certificate rollout. Because the rollout and automation of that is always the most painful thing. And that nobody. Is the one thing I give Google slash Amazon credit for is you route everything through an ALB, you let yeah. ACM manage the certificate, and you're done. There, there are um, no yeah. other issues. You go about trying to figure out how you're going to manage mutual TLS between your applications within your own VPN. And, you know, work on the hard problem rather than the TLS problem that's been solved at least 18,000 times. No matter what you think ACM is going to cost you. It's worth it. it. It is not as much as all the hassle will cost you. It is not as much as being down because your TLS or it expired. Exactly. Um, Embarrassment has a price tag <laughs> when you're publicly traded. And, and lucky, luckily again, we have no web presence. We have no customers. We have no TLS public. Can I buy your stock? So I'm, I'm nope. working in an organization that has some very, very cutting edge, forward looking stuff and some very, very old, old legacy stuff. And we recently had a project to go through and automate the detection and refresh of TLS certificates for half a dozen services because in the before time, it was like every two years you had to refresh it. And so nobody really had it top of mind. There was documentation. Again, was... no one invested in automating mm -hmm. that process well, because when, it only happened once every... Yeah, when you spend 10 every minutes whatever. every two years, you don't care. And then policies have changed. Like Apple did their thing with Safari saying more than 13 months is no longer valid regardless and other people are clamping down. So the current, like the, the in vogue way of doing this is every 60 days you roll a certificate. Well, when you go from rolling on half a dozen services, a certificate every two years to rolling a certificate every two or three weeks, well, suddenly the stakes have changed because you have all these services. They're all, I don't think that's worth automating. That's so simple. We don't do it that often. <laughs> well, it is now. And honestly, it was before but it was such a low pain point that like the the cost to benefit True. reward was not. The yeah. squeaky wheel does get the most grease. 
So we automated the summer and we said, okay, all these legacy systems that we are in the process of decommissioning over the next two or three years, because honestly, that's the time frame. I don't want to get pinged by a customer or an external party saying, hey, the thing is down because the certificate's invalid again. No, we're, we're going to automate it. And every day we're checking to see if things are close enough and we automate it. We just automate the crap out of it so we don't have to deal with it again. And it's worth it. It's definitely worth the time. It's more than worth the time. It's worth it stock price. <laughs> I mean, that's, to me, that's one of the most embarrassing things that, that a company can do is you hit their website and there's some TLS error. And in my position doing observability, I've got tools that, that check and monitor this for folks. Yeah. But I can't magically ferret out where I need to point the probes uh, uh, for users, uh, for for internal folks to, to make sure that everything is well monitored. And so tracking TLS stuff ends up still being a big problem. And uh, here in 2022, I thought that'd be one thing I didn't have to do. Well, and that's why we automated it. Um, because yeah. the new person on the team always gets the job of, hey, there's a certificate expiring. Go request from this other team to get a new TLS certificate, then download it and make sure the format's correct and check the the SANS and check the things and make sure everything's in the right format and then upload it and then restart the service and hope it comes back up. <laughs> oh, wait, what? Yeah, that's terrible. So the practice that my workplace follows is it's in Kubernetes and they have a standard-ish um, init container that fetches your TLS certificate for your application, which isn't really super standard depending on you know, how you need to fetch it, where you need to put it, what do you need to do with it? Because you know where you put that SSL certificate, TLS certificate, every application is different. Um, and it doesn't solve the issue of, of what happens if you need to rotate that certificate uh, while, the, while the application is up. The only way to rotate is to destroy the pod and recreate. And there are there are several solutions Kubernetes wise for or updating and maintaining TLS certificates that are a lot more standardized than some bad scripts in a, in a init container. <laughs> and it's just how many ways can we reinvent the wheel on something that something that is really solved? And you say Kubernetes, Kubernetes, Kubernetes. Some of the things that I'm dealing with are hand-built VMs that can't really be rebuilt easily. And so we keep rolling them forward. And we know it's yep. terrible. And we have a plan to kill them. But in the meantime, how do you automate? I probably it's, built some of those, yeah. So it's worth putting in a couple of days of time to fix it. Because it saves us so much time later. Uh, anymore, if if I'm forced into, we don't have time while you automate it. I was like, fine. And then I go back, and if possible, automate it and replace it when nobody's looking. Because again, trading, once the trading day's over, things are really quiet, and we can do things without getting people in in the way. You know, during the during the trading hours, can't can't have anything down but once once trading closes then we can start moving stuff around 
And so there's been a couple times where it's been, no, we can't automate it. We don't have time while you do that because it t- takes longer. Fine. I mean, I get it. Sometimes that happens. But then I go back because anything we do, we'll end up doing. That's kind of one thing that I want to outline. Uh, long ago, like back in the 90s or early 2000s, I wrote 10 Rules of Systems Administration, and I put it on my blog. And occasionally I update it, but it's basically been the same 10 rules of automation. And let's see, where did my website go? I will read it. Uh-oh. It's always DNS. It's always DNS. No, that's actually not on my... Because uh, now it's always IAM. <laughs> 10 levels of things. Um, but point number five, rule number five, automate everything. If you might do a task again, it's worth automating. Repeating the task becomes significantly more efficient and the process will not be lost or forgotten for rarely performed work. Yep. And as I, as I work with folks of varying experiences, the hardest thing for me to kind of get across is automating is not about being able to do the task repeatedly. It's about not forgetting how to do the task. It's about being able to pass that task off to the new guy on the team and you have them make an improvement, make an iteration, uh, supervise that automation as it goes forward and perhaps even make it better. And it's being able to reproduce your work as a side effect of being able to work more efficiently and not lose information in the future. When I was a, a young administrator, the rule of thumb handed to me was if you're going to do, do a task more than three times, automate it. And it was a functional rule, and it doesn't exactly cover it. But the idea was anything you're going to keep on doing, you should probably find a way to, to shave time, human error, repeatability, other mistakes out of that and exercise it. I automated my weekly reports of the pager duty on-call rotation. And let me tell you what a royal pain in the behind that was to integrate with the PagerDuty APIs to build some Go code around that to produce some graphs and charts and the numbers that we track and get those numbers fed into the the, the metrics that we track per month. But let me tell you, it's been worth every single hour I poured into, uh, you know, how do I extract this data and make a graph that doesn't suck? I, I follow the, if I have to do it more than zero times, I automate it anymore because there's a very good chance that even though I think I'm not going to do it again, down the road, I will. I will approach a problem thinking first and primarily about how can I automate this solution? Well, how can I build this in an API generated or driven way so that I, maybe I can't automate it the first time or second time around? But so that the foundation's there, so it's easy to do rather than, you know, doing something crazy like downloading crap over the internet and shoving it into GNU plot. The other thing is it even though I as much as GNU plot is the, magic, by the way. As much as I hate it when people say, you know, the code is self documenting <laughs> at least there's some evidence of what you did and how it was built. Yeah, you I know? wouldn't say code is self documenting, no, but But it's better than nothing. There's exactly. a step. There, there's, there's an instruction, a recipe there that says how you got from point A to point B. Exactly. Now, why and, maybe you know, lost time? 
but and maybe if know how to do that process. And maybe it is possible to point the Terraform at a different account or a different um, region and spin everything up to see what happened. You can write some Ruby got. spec around that. So I, I just, I was hoping to get I, a really bad reaction from that, but but Jared is here, here, so it's here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I see it as, as, as some level of documentation, you know, it's not really documentation, but it is some, you have some evidence of what was done and some is better than none. Exactly. True. And now, unlike your wiki page, if that process is running, you know, every week to generate my page duty reports, that's a process I use. It's not outdated. Yeah. I think the most shameful piece of work artifact that I left behind at a job was an account creation process that was automating an Oracle extract and Unix accounts and Windows accounts and other things. This is a long time ago. And it was a really horrible chain of events that had to happen in the right order and those things. And I left it thinking, okay, the next folks in here will have more time to automate this and make it better. And a couple of years later, I was chatting with somebody at that organization. I'm like, are you, are you still using those? And they're like, oh yeah. And they work mostly. It's never like, broken. So we've never fixed it. I'm so sorry. They, I'm so sorry. But Jack, you linked an XKCD um, comment in our internal ch channel. And I think it's really important for folks to go look at this. Yeah. So that XKCD article is the you know, scientific approach to, you know, we don't have time to automate this. It's not worth uh, uh, doing the automation here, you know, because we're never going to repeat this or whatever. But that walks you through, you know, how many times you expect to repeat that task versus, you know, how many hours you put into automating that task to figure out uh, when you start saving time. And but, it's actually quite surprising because, you know, a few hours of work starts saving you days. Yeah, one of the things like in that graph, it's, it's a, you know, you look through it. If if a weekly task only happens on Friday mornings and you can make it run one minute faster over five years, put in three or four hours debugging, fixing, cleaning up that task. Because it will save you time. It'll save you other things later. Yeah. And again, this doesn't really address sort of the third dimension of this graph where not only does automating you know, save you time, but it preserves that knowledge into the future so that when you do have to run this rarely performed work, you still know how it, how it happens, what needs to happen. It also doesn't um, handle... What happens when the frequency of the task gets ramped up? When somebody says, instead of running the user account report every week, we're doing it every hour. Oh, crap. Well, suddenly the automation pays for itself in dividends immediately. Well, or, I need to do a page due report for multiple teams, not just my own. And suddenly the, the power of that automation really starts to compound. Yeah. So, for yeah, me, I thought about smaller. that XKCD article while we were chatting and figured I'd stick it in here. For me, the dividend is usually I have forgotten how I did it by the time somebody comes around and asks for me to do it again. Uh-huh. There's nothing like, hey, that thing you built for me last year, I, I need another one. Um, okay. And then you spend all the research time all over again 
trying to do that as quietly as possible, not to admit that you couldn't freaking remember everything. And to me, that's the other scariest part about this. It's why I'm always afraid when somebody who's been in an organization for five, eight, ten years leaves is how much was in their head and never got synchronized with the, the documentation or the automation or... Oh, it's that one Somebody thing that else. happens every six months and I go and I, I push this button, I pull this lever manually and then it's fine. And then they leave. And then six months later, nobody's there to pull the lever. What happens? Yeah. I, the those, galaxy implodes. We had, we had part of the uh, reconciliation process of the end of day trades was a spreadsheet. No shit. Excel on somebody's PC. And this was part of production had to run, had to, had to had to be done for financial the financial stuff to work and then they went on vacation and they left it up and left it running but then we had a power blip nobody knew that this is how it was done that's always the worst that's always absolutely the worst <laughs> so you know it's you know there's there's all sorts of of bad stuff in this story that we can cover but you know the shadow IT aspect of this, or and even if it's not shadow, even if it was done properly, it, you don't know about it because the person that did it is not there anymore. If there's no documentation or code, code or anything else, you don't know how it works. You don't know how it was built. If that that internal knowledge has left, I don't ever want a job that I have job security by obfuscation. <laughs> yeah, no. That's not a and, fun. And place I've to worked be. with people who operated that way. I know a lot of people who operate that way. And it's it's not me. Because Automation is not going to automate yourself out of a job. Exactly. Automation is going to prove that you're capable of doing more of your job or finding new, yep. interesting other jobs to do. Yeah. I don't want to do the same job over and over and over again for years. I want to keep on doing new, different jobs that are challenging me in different ways, and that's how yep. I grow. Exactly. So it's, an, it's another reason to automate. Not only will you look better, you get the chance to go do cooler things. One of the issues that I deal with frequently is that due to poor automation, it becomes really challenging and difficult to automate new tasks because every time you do a specific task, the, the task is actually different. Um, so the example I had was you're trying to get uh, Prometheus monitoring set up on multiple Kubernetes clusters and which should seem like a completely normal thing you roll out and just is there but I had to go into each cluster and clean up the stuff that was there before for Prometheus monitoring and it was all different and I had to go and chase it down um, to one of the one of the prices you pay by not automating is that every time you do a task it becomes different and when you go back to improve or iterate you spend so much more time because everything is different and it's much easier to automate something that's the same everywhere rather than automate something that has to do you know 10 15 50 different special cases for different setups so I worked with I worked with a gentleman a bunch of years ago who was very focused on keeping the status quo. He was really afraid isn't the right word, but he was really focused on things like 
I'm going to deploy an NTP server in every subnet of every network to make sure the long tail of if things fail, we're still okay in, in this particular case or another. You know, if you have a networking failure, you can still sync time. Time or something. Um, but his his approach to it was, and I'm going to do it all myself. I'm going to handle all the cases. I'm going to install all the things. I'm going to run the scripts. And he was trying to sort of own these pieces of it. And I think it was a job security play or not trusting other people, like didn't trust other administrators. Both in there, if I remember correctly. But that resistance, that that's the kind of mentality that breeds the the folks resisting external automation. It it resists hey, we have a common tool that we can all use. Um, that and a lot of people introduce tools before they're quite ready. So like configuration management tools that are for pushing out configurations to servers and services, like essentially a, a backend for ConfD or something like that. When they're new, operations teams don't like them. They don't want them. It's okay. You haven't proven that this is re- resistant and resilient. Yeah, when Puppet and... was new back in the day. Exactly. Like people are, yeah. they're, they're afraid to let something else take control of something as important as provisioning new users or changing TLS keys or restarting services. And they're really hesitant about any of those things. But as the tools yeah, get more was... mature, you get more comfortable. I was, I was going to you know, bring up that uh, what I've seen is a lot of folks they know how to do it. They they know how it it's going to be done right if they do it, and it's it's <laughs> both control and confidence. Always is, and yeah, it's like well, I don't know what your your magic box is going to do for that, but if I do it, it'll be right. At least um, if I do it, I'll know how it was done, and I think that's the crux of it. But you have to think about the larger picture. The um, larger picture being. Build the automation around it. Yeah, you still know how it's done, and you won't forget it. Ours, I, I, I just say, do you care how it's done? If the output is the same, do you care? And in today's SRE world, that's designed to push software faster and faster and faster. You need that brain space for the next thing, and so being able to build up. The, the tasks that you have automated and the toolkit around that means that you'll be able to accomplish more automation faster yeah. in the future. And I think it's getting on that bandwagon that is really hard in the first couple steps because yeah. it takes time to do that first iteration and it takes time to do that second one. But then that third one's a little bit faster and by the fifth or sixth, you're starting to see, hey, there's usefulness here. But you have uh, to keep gonna, pressing on. Yeah, I was going to say, you start building up your own internal library of, of modules and pieces that you can... And techniques hey, that you it. follow. And yeah. you know, GitLab pipelines that are fantastic for how you push stuff around. Yep. And this is really the crux of what happened to operations teams. Like, fundamentally, this is what killed operations teams from back in the day that ops teams used to be a bunch of folks who went server to server with CDs or jump drives or whatever to go configure things. And then we have all slowly become software engineers, willingly or not. So you have to start scripting and automating and making it repeatable and making the different scripts 
talk to each other, and suddenly you have a, a you write pretty software well- that builds the software, and in my case, in, in in observability, I write software that monitors the software. So when I started, it was one to five was the ratio of administrators to systems that you could reasonably do. And then it was one to 20. And then it was one to yes, 50. What did we have at the university, Brendan? Five of us for 250 servers or so. And now it's one to thousands, honestly, at large corporations. If you're in yeah. a large environment, you have one person or you have a team of three people, but you're managing thousands of instances. And you see instances now as, you know, Kubernetes jobs or pods or whatever. But the scale has I mean, gotten I've lost so count big. At how many actual EC2 VMs I run stuff on? I don't care anymore. Yeah. I don't well, count the, the pods. Because I we automate. Look down on vendors who try to charge me per pod or per, per EC2 instance because my workload is totally and completely dynamic. And that's how it should be. Automate everything. That's happiness. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment at the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email. Feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night.